Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Frank Price, a member of the club's member-led forums. We also welcome our listening audience, and we invite everybody, everyone to visit us online at thecommonwealthclub.org. Now, I would like to introduce our distinguished speaker, Dave Newhouse, sports journalist, columnist, Oakland Tribune, author of The Incredible Slip Madigan. Dave Newhouse is an Oaklander and a longtime uh, columnist with the Oakland Tribune and KNBR Sports Talk Show host. Newhouse's career in newspapers spanned 52 years, 47 of them at the Tribune. He retired in 2011. He will talk about the storied past of a local sports hero, Edward Slip Madigan. Now it is my pleasure to welcome Dave Newhouse to the podium. Our thanks to Dave for his comments here today. Thank you, Frank, and thanks, Linda, and thank you all for, for, for coming to learn the history of a real raconteur. The Slip Madigan story, can you hear me all right? Is great? The Slip Madigan story framed in a historical perspective likely runs the gamut from fact to fable even if it is to be believed. But believe me, it's altogether true. Though to fully comprehend the remarkable life and amazing saga of Edward Patrick Slip Madigan, you must journey back a hundred years to the end of World War I. After Slip served in a non-combat stateside military position during the war, he returned to Notre Dame, where he was a 156-pound center in football. He'd be half the center in today's football. And his first-year coach was none other, none other than Newt Rockney, who would be a future face on football's Mount Rushmore of coaches. Rockney would become an iconic figure, much like Slip's teammate, George Gipp. And we're talking about the real Gipper, not Ronald Reagan, who played him in the movies. Academically at Notre Dame, it was a different time. Slip renewed his emphasis as an undergraduate on law and architecture. You can do that back then. So because law ran in, his law classes ran into football, he switched his major to architecture. And later in life, he used both those majors to make him a very wealthy man after football. In fact, a millionaire home builder in Contra Costa County. Architecturally, he drew his own plan. Law, he knew all the legalities. But during his collegiate years, football was enjoying a rebirth. You have to remember that early last century, it had been banned as too violent. Too violent by, of all people, President Theodore Rough and Ready Roosevelt. And during that period of time, rugby replaced football until the end of World War I. By that time, I guess they figured blocking and tackling was less violent than foxhole duty. Then two years out of college, Slip showed up at the St. Mary's College campus, which was then located in Oakland. He confidently told President Brother Gregory, I could be the Christmas present St. Mary's is looking for. Well... 
some Christmas present indeed, because Slip was hired in 1921, take a deep breath everyone, as head coach in not only football, but basketball, baseball, track and field, and boxing with no assistant coaches. Hold that breath. He was also athletic director, ticket seller, and groundskeeper. Don't let the breath out just yet. Slip was team trainer and equipment man, kneeling cleats on shoes to save money. Not yet. Your faces are turning red. Oh, and did I mention that he also taught classes in history, economics, and government. Oh, my gosh. Take that, Bill Belichick. (laughs) And talk about a rough debut. Slip's very first opponent was Cal's Wonder Team, which hadn't lost a game in five years. And had barely edged St. Mary's the year before, 127 to nothing, (laughs) forcing the school to cancel the rest of the season. Not, not Cal, which was laughing too hard, but St. Mary's. Well, Slip's debut against Cal ended in a 21 to nothing loss. He had shaved 106 points. He only had about 120 boys on campus. Well, the Madigan miracle, miracle was underway. Before the roaring 20s were over, Slip would defeat Cal, Stanford, USC, and other programs with much larger student bodies than St. Mary's, of course. And Slip, though, during that decade, managed to produce two undefeated seasons and three first-team All-Americans. George Seifert coached the 49ers to two Super Bowl victories. I asked him if he might consider writing a foreword for, for this book. He read the book, and this is what he wrote. During the present period of sports in our country, rules rule. Slip Madigan's energy, innovative ideas, business savvy, and football genius would have run into a wall of NCAA laws and college administrative suppression. That's the beauty of the Slip Madigan story. His coaching time took place during the era of the Old West of football. Anything goes as long as it works, and winning became the narcotic for Slip Madigan's power. We all love the story about a person who has the gall to be the best. It motivates our horizon. Gosh, they named a school for him before he became coach at SMC. St. Mary's College, SMC. Ah, Slip Madigan coach. (laughs) When I was a young coach, my buddies and I would talk about the characters of our time. Woody Hayes, Bear Bryant, and Duffy Doherty. The stories about those coaches, their characteristics and successes proved to be the energy for our dreams. Coach Slip was trying to make, during this period of economic turmoil, the Depression, a buck. And he also made history. Theodore Roosevelt once made a speech where he stated, quote, Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, then to rank with those timid spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat, end quote. President Teddy Roosevelt and Slip Madigan were of the same mold. Heck, in today's world, Slip Madigan could run for president. <laughs> He's got a point. Let's face it. Slip Madigan changed football like no one else. 
His footprint is all over the game. He is credited with these other changes, blackboard chalk talks, spring football practice, the training table, scouting opponents, and close practices. How inventive was he? Think of Henry Ford with a coaching whistle. Slip Madigan is responsible for making St. Mary's College nationally known. One year, Tiny St. Mary's was second only to USC in national attendance. And because of Slip's financial success in football, St. Mary's was able to afford its new campus site in Moraga after the Oakland campus burned to the ground in 1928. Brother Jerome, a school president during Slip's time, he acknowledged the Madigan miracle. Quote, football puts St. Mary's on the map, and that's how we were able to move out to Moraga, because the football team was making money. God is a gale, end quote. That said, let it be known that one of God's children, Slip Madigan, must have had a halo over his head. St. Mary's actually had three campus sites starting off here in San Francisco in 1863, then moving to Oakland in 1889 and fielding its first football team in 1892. Then after that fire destroyed the campus building known as the Brick Pile in Oakland, St. Mary's shifted to Moraga, right next to the railroad tracks, which became Slip's most successful recruiting tool, the train. Moving into the 1930s, Slip knocked off USC's thundering herd the year it was the national champion. And despite all of his success, Slip didn't receive one bowl bid until 1938 when his galloping gales won the Cotton Bowl. But his topper of topper was, quote, the world's longest cocktail party those yearly coast-to-coast train trips to play powerful Fordham University in New York City. And one of Fordham's linemen was Vince Lombardi. The line was known as the Seven Blocks of Granite. They don't write it like that anymore. Besides his players on these trips, Slip invited along alumni and boosters who paid the freight. Slip wasn't dumb. And newspaper men who spread the Madigan speech, the legend, free of charge. Coach Sonny Dykes, formerly at Cal and now at Southern Method University, rhapsodized about such an excursion in the book's prologue. One second. Here's what he wrote. I hadn't heard of Slip Madigan before, but it's guys like him who put football on the map. His ability to create a story was pretty unusual, yet that allowed St. Mary's College to make its mark in the football world. The barnstorming thing when they went to New York to play Fordham was awesome. It was a game back then where coaching made the difference. Slip was flamboyant, and he wasn't afraid to try things that were were unusual to go against conventional wisdom. That's what made him successful. St. Mary's was an outsider, and an underdog. I thought I had a full plate as a head coach, but Slip had a buffet, coaching football, basketball, baseball, track and field, and boxing. Plus, he was director of physical education, or what is now athletic director, when he got to St. Mary's in 1921. He had to be incredibly versatile. 
But you could gain an advantage back then by thinking outside the box. Slip was able to do that. He'd come up with an idea and it took others five, six years to catch up. With today's technology, you put something in the playbook that you think is unique and people catch up really fast. That's why Sonny didn't last too long at Cal, I guess. Slip was creative enough to where his football teams weren't the biggest or strongest or fastest, but he gave them a competitive advantage. Here's the part I love. In my mind's eye, I could picture myself coaching back then. I think it would have been fun. Loading your team on a train and traveling across the country is pretty fascinating to me. I like it when people have wanderlust in their veins. To do the things he did and meet the people he met, that would have been a blast. Like I said, he knew how to coach, how to create ideas that were unique, and how to motivate his teams to score huge upsets. He just knew how to create a story. Slip Madigan was his own travel agent. Just visualize P.T. Barnum with a chalkboard. Slip would beat Fordham and then on the way home, visit President Herbert Hoover in the White House. On other trips home, St. Mary's party would stop off in, well, Canada, Cuba, Mexico, <laughs> and even the Grand Can Canyon, where one of Slip's players recorded the longest punt in history. Down, down, down. And it's right there in the Guinness Book of Records. Presidents welcomed Slip, including Franklin Delano Roosevelt, at his estate in New York. And famous people just gravitated towards Slip, including actors Errol Flynn, Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, and Pat O'Brien. And you'll have to read the book to see how actresses Marlena Dietrich and Jean Harlow screened sirens became part of the Madigan story. Babe Ruth attended his games, and so did the greatest sports writers, Damon Runyon and Grantland Rice. Here's what I had to say about Slip's impact on the game in the introduction, just briefly. Football coach, promoter, showman, innovator, raconteur, hustler, but not huckster, celebrity magnet, Wartime military officer, architect, mentor, giant killer, and giant maker. There was only one Slip Madigan. Quote, I'll tell you, said Ed Madigan, the mold was broken by my dad, and there's been no one like him in football since. End quote. Well, there was no one like Slip Madigan before Slip Madigan either. If he weren't real, you'd think he was fictitious. He didn't invent football, but he changed the way America thought about the game. He was the first mainland coach to play a football game in Hawaii, actually two games back-to-back -back in 1922. I think he might have even steered the boat. He was the first football coach to travel coast-to-coast -coast for a game by train in 1930 to play Fordham. He built St. Mary's College into a national football power and one of the country's biggest draws, even without a campus stadium. And while other teams wore standard cotton and khaki, Madigan dressed his team in silk. Quote, he was one of a kind, his son emphasized. He was indeed. Madigan played for Newt Rockney before becoming, quote, the Newt Rockney of the West, unquote. He was a Notre Dame teammate of George Gipp 
and the gipper benefited from the blocking of the slipper. He orig Madigan originated college football on Sundays, and he was a pioneer of night football. He built two unbeaten teams in St. Mary's in spite of a minuscule student body. He knocked off a national champion on his own turf, and he won his only bowl appearance, and he alone was responsible for Lee relocating a school to a new campus site through finances accrued by his football team. A smart businessman as well as an innovative coach, he received a percentage of every football ticket sold. <laughs> After leaving football, as I said, he became a millionaire in construction. Anything my father touched, he, <coughs> he achieved. <coughs> Excuse me, the son noted. <coughs> Slip's teams never got to play against Newt Rockney, but Slip beat two other faces on football's Mount Rushmore, Amos Alonzo Stagg and Pop Warner. <clears throat> Slip beat Pop so badly, 16 to nothing at Stanford in 1927, that Stanford never played St. Mary's again. Sore loser, Pop? My gosh. St. Mary's professor, Ron Izetti, described that 1926 victory perfectly. Quote, when St. Mary's beat Stanford, it became a cultural war. The Irish and the Italian immigrants who built the railroad defeated Leland Stanford, who owned the railroad. End quote. I guess you could score one for the commoner over the gentry, right? <laughs> Slip defeated Stagg at the College of Pacific, and he did defeat Pop later again, even though he said he'd never play Slip again. Pop went off to Temple. They played down, they played St. Mary's, and St. Mary's won again. And taking down Giants is partly why Slip is in the College Football Hall of Fame. With a coaching record of 116 wins, 45 losses, 12 ties, nearly an 80% winning percentage. St. Mary's finally got him some assistant coaches and relieved him of his myriad duties. Thank you. Otherwise, he wouldn't have lasted 19 seasons on the gridiron. Imagine a coach lasting 19 seasons anywhere in this day and age. But because of those other responsibilities early on, his wife told him to protect himself. And so Slip received 10% of every ticket sold. And in the middle of the Depression, she urged him against growing administrative and alumni ranker, he'd been there a long time, to collect. Thus, St. Mary's, in 1936, cut him a check for $38,000, which it was contractually obligated to pay him. Slip wasn't being slippery. He was a moral man. So who was this Slip Madigan? What do we know about him? Well, he grew up in Ottawa, Illinois, where he became Slip because of his ice skating missteps. Ottawa, historically, is where Abraham Lincoln was discharged from the Illinois militia in 1832, and where, now in these era of presidential debates, it's where Honest Abe had his first presidential debate with Stephen A. Douglas in 1858. Remember high school history? Those are famous. Ottawa is also where the Boy Scouts were founded in 1910. St. Mary's isn't the Bay Area's oldest college, by the way. It ranks fourth behind Slip's opponents, Santa Clara, and the College of the Pacific, now UOP in 1851, and St. Ignatius, now the University of San Francisco, in 1855. 
Other slip foes, Cal started 1868, Stanford 1891, USC 1880, and Pupster UCLA 1919. Slip moved into an Oakland home across from the Claremont Country Golf Course in 1932. It's this Hollywood-looking home, painted pink. He lived there until his death in 1966 at age 69. A young sports journalist, Joe Shea, had not been at the Oakland Tribune all that long when he was assigned Slip's obituary. Young Joe responded beautifully. Here's how he let off the obit. Edward Patrick Slip Madigan, the man who introduced the jet set concept into football when there were no jets, and at the same time molded Little St. Mary's College in one of the nations, into one of the nation's top football power is dead. Young Joe, my colleague, also was the Rembrandt of sports page designers. He's now old Joe. Raise your hand back there, fellow. Not so old. Keep your hand up for a little longer people, so people can see you. <laughs> All of Slip's players have passed on. But Dick Underhill, the son of one of Slip's earliest heroes in Moraga, Jim Underhill, is here tonight to share some of his memories of Slip's impact on his dad and others. Jim, come on up. Or Dick, come on up. I'm sorry. I'll get out of your way. Hello, everybody. I met Dave at Senator Junior College years ago. Uh, we just graduated from high school. He from Menlo, uh, me from Santa Rosa High. And uh, that's where he met. We are on the basketball team for a while. He was also on the track team, and I played some baseball there. He got to reconnect with David San Jose State years later after he was his uh, military service, and I want to congratulate him on his amazing uh, career as a writer and his passion for sports and all his accomplishments, and uh, it's like the perfect storm for Dave and uh, Ed Madigan to get together with Ed Madigan's 19 years of history of one of the most famous coaches ever, and to write this amazing book with Dave's uh, expertise is a, is a masterpiece, and I um, uh, congratulations to Dave. Uh, I met Slip Madigan in 1956. My dad's last year, or dad did a lot of coaching, I'll get to soon, but his last year of coaching was 1956, and uh, uh, they had a, a benefit for dad, and uh, Slip Madigan was a coach. It was uh, Reen, a, a place called uh, Lena's in Santa Rosa, and, and, and uh, he was a guest speaker. And, um, Dad went to Napa High School, and he, he was a four, uh, he played football, basketball, baseball, and uh, track and field. And he was recruited by Slip Madden to go to St. Mary's in 1923. So Dad uh, lettered every year in basketball and football. And then in uh, 1926, they had uh, this Madigan's first great team. And they went undefeated, beat USC, beat Cal, beat uh, Santa Clara. And uh, it was quite a backfield they had. My, my father was a uh, halfback. He was all coast and honorable mention, all-American. Red Strader was a fullback. He was from uh, uh, Modesto. He was third-team uh, all-American and all coast. And Dutch Collin uh, was a quarterback. He's a San Francisco guy. And he was all coast. 
and uh, that, that was all coast and, and uh, honorable mention all American. So that was quite a, a backfield. It's interesting their careers after uh, after 1926. Dad uh, coached at Sacred Heart for uh, one year. 19 uh, yeah 1929. And they ended up coaching at St. Mary's High School for five years. Coached football, basketball, baseball. And then he went to St. Mary's and coached uh, back to St. Mary's and his head basketball coach for two years and assistant football coach there. Dad went on to uh, to coach at Santa Rosa High School for many years after that. And he he was also uh, uh, an NFL official from 46 to 52. And uh, he was inducted in the California Coaches Football Hall of Fame in 1970. Just kind of interested that backfield. And uh, Red Strader coached at St. Mary's with Madigan. And then he was the first coach for the uh, – Red Strader was the first coach uh, for the 49ers in 1946, excuse me. And, uh, and then Eddie Erlatz went to Santa Rosa High School. My dad coached him, and he coached him at St. Mary's High School. Then he was a coach – Madigan's assistant coach at St. Mary's. And he ended up being uh, the head coach of the Oakland Raiders. And before that, he coached at the Naval Academy, became a hero, beat Army three times. And uh, so, and let's see, um, Leo Rooney, the hat he was from Christian Brothers in Sacramento. He went back to Christian Brothers and was uh, the dean of boys. So that whole backfield was really successful. And there uh, so many people that played for Maddie were successful. I mean, guy was so bright and uh, one thing my dad had in common with uh, Mr. Madigan, he, uh, he was a motivational speaker, great pregame and halftime uh, speeches. And uh, Madigan was a pro with that. He was, uh, uh, of course, he played for Newt Rock. Newt Rock was known for uh, his testimonial uh, motivational speeches. Uh, and Madigan was a, uh, an expert at it, too. And uh, they're right up there with two of the best coaches ever. Enough about sports. I remember uh, my dad's best friend was Dutch Collin, and, uh, and I was like 18. Had they came over for dinner? Dutch Collin's wife and her mice was also a great coach uh, that went to St. Mary's. He coached at uh, uh, with Pappy Walter for three years, and you know another great coach. But they, my dad had a dinner one night. It was uh, Dutch Collin's wife, her mice, his wife, brother Albert, who's president of St. Mary's College for years. And just an amazing guy, an eloquent speaker, and uh, a legend. He was there too, and they had a they had a dinner party. And after the dinner party, they uh, my my parents had a big crystal bowl and probably a wedding present, and they filled it up with coffee and and uh, orange peels. And then brother out bring the Crystal Brothers brandy because they own that winery, and so they pour the brandy in there. And then Dad liked to sing. Dutch Collin liked to sing, sing these songs, the Bells of St. Mary's, and and then the women start singing songs. And they sang one song. It was kind of risque, and I was kind of uh, thought that was kind of rude of adults to sing that in front of Brother Albert. But he was uh, had a few drinks, and I don't think he cared anyway. <laughs> anyway, but uh, it's an amazing story about that school, and I'm uh, proud of my dad for all his success as a coach and. <laughs> All the interested people I met through him, coaches and kind of just well-known uh, people. But if it wasn't for Slip Madigan, I don't know where uh, where my dad would be. But uh, he helped so many people, such a legend that uh, there's never been anyone like him. So, Dick, you want to end this? You want to tell the audience about what Slip told? Huh? You want to tell the audience what Slip 
told, uh, I'm sorry, was it oh, Madigan I met, told? I, yeah, I met, oh, excuse me, I met, well, I met Slip in 1956, but I also went to a, uh, a uh, annual event at uh, St. Mary's College, a reunion, and Mrs. Madigan, she, I was about 16, I guess, she came up to me, she had a big smile and, and uh, a firm handshake, and she just said your dad was Slip's favorite. So that was kind of interesting. She told me that at 16 years old, and, but she was a delight. And, just a, and Ed was a great guy. I met him in San Francisco uh, at a cocktail party once, and then I met him numerous times after that in all the best watering holes. Ed Moose's... Uh, be careful, be careful. Oh, anyway, so I'm enough. sorry, Dave. No, that's good, oh, Dave. Thanks, uh, thanks very much. And thank you for coming up, Dick. Well, I hate to say it, but Dick and I met in college in 1956, and today he'll pour you a beer on weekdays. Is it the Glen Park Station? You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. So again, real quickly, how did this book come together? Well, in the basement of Slip's home, now occupied by his son and his family, there are these tome-like scrapbooks that were kept back in the 1920s and 30s. It, it, It would be like, let me do this. The 1931 season, the 1932, 33, 34, 30. there were scrapbooks back, smaller scrapbooks back through the 20s. So there were all the game stories from St. Mary's. And what was really interesting, we forget about heroes. And there were, I thought I knew everybody. And there were players I'd never heard of who were doing all these fantastic, heroic things for St. Mary's. And I thought, you know, it's good to write a book about someone who's never been written about before. I mean, I don't want to do the 1500th book on Abraham Lincoln. What, am, what have I learned that nobody else knows, right? About Honest Dave. So I, would, I went there for about, my wife wanted to know where I was. That's my wife back there. Patsy, wave your hand, hon. We've only been married 50, almost 55 years. So, but these... Books talked about, they delineated Slip's coaching prowess, but also captured his life in Ottawa all the way back to 1910. And that was done through, you know, back in high school, kids used to write prose and poetry, and they'd have these newsletters at at his high school in Ottawa, Illinois, and they would write prosaically and poetically about him, and he'd write the same thing about them And I thought, do they still teach English like that anymore? But it was just a wealth of information. It took me eight months to to wade through all all those scrapbooks to capture the singular life, singular life, and to learn, as I said, about these football heroes. It was just a treasure trove of information. There were game stories written by journalists, journalists in some cases who were foreign to me as well. Remember, much of this happened before the Bay Bridge was built. That's a long time ago. St. Mary's professor Ron Isetti summarized this collaboration of academics and athletics in the Moraga Valley thusly. Okay, let me get this. 
right? Sorry. Here's what he wrote. It was a school that beat the odds. During the Depression, when the odds were against people, it was wonderful to see the little guy or the little school win. And not only win, but win with color, with panache, with style. The thing with Slip Madigan is that he was more than an individual. He was a cultural phenomenon, expressive of the decade. He was the perfect man at the perfect time. Well, it's a new century, and Slip has been gone, what, a cent half century plus. But is he really gone? At Madigan Gym, which still exists on the campus in Moraga, There came a time in 1983, the Gales were now playing small college football, when a player decided after practice to take a nap on a wrestling mat. When he awakened, it was dark, and he looked up, and he saw this figure pacing back and forth behind the upstairs bleachers. The figure was wearing an overcoat, scarf, and borsalino. That was a fashionable Stetson-like dress hat of the slip era. The stunned player called out to the pacer. Who are you? Can I help you? But the pacer in the dark did not respond and eventually just disappeared into the woodwork. Spooky? There are two other stories suggesting that Slip Madigan is a haunting presence at St. Mary's. Bruce Hale and George Balovich were the basketball coaches back in the 70s. And it was summertime. School was out. Nobody was on campus but those two. And they were painting the key before the free throw, before the basket behind the free throw line. They were painting the key and just working along. And all of a sudden, at the end of the gym, the Dutch door is opening to the equipment room, started Flapping back and forth, bang, 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 bang. And Bruce looked at George, and George looked at Bruce as to who goes first. So they just, they were mesmerized, flap, flap, flap. So finally, they walked around to the other side and entered the equipment room through its regular entry. And the flapping stopped. They couldn't figure out there was no wind in the gym. It was summer. It was hot. Couldn't have been slip. Another time, a player and a girlfriend decided to take a shower in Madigan Gym. By this time, McKeon Pavilion, the new basketball facility, had, had been built, and George was still there coaching. So the player and the girlfriend got in the shower. They turned on the nozzle, and all 20 nozzles delivered water at the same time. So there they are, kind of in their Christmas suits. And how do you turn off 20 showers? So the football player got dressed, and he ran over and got George, and they came over, and I don't know to this day. George told me he didn't know how the water stopped. But you have to understand, Slip is a very moral man. He would not have stood for any shower shenanigans. Well, let's not forget Slip Madigan. And George Balovich is a friend. He personally described those two incidents, which are recorded in, in, in the book. 
Slip Madigan did build St. Mary's, yes. But is he still keeping an eye on the campus? Late at night, students have seen a figure through the window at Madigan Gym. They swear, wearing, is that a Bordesolino hat? What is that? Pacing back and forth. Eerie? Do you believe in ghosts? You've been a most attentive audience. Thank you very much. If you have any questions you'd like to, if you don't write them down, if you'd like to ask them, I can walk around with a microphone. Okay. You mentioned that they didn't have a stadium to play in. Where did they play? They played in other people's stadiums. Like and what? Well, they, Stanford had a stadium. Cal had a stadium. Remember, after World War I, a lot of memorial stadiums were built all around the country. I've been to some where you see the, the names of fallen soldiers and military men on the pillars inside the stadium. And a lot of those names were built in the 1920s. St. Mary's just would play everywhere it, it, it could. And to ra- but to rack up national attendance, it could play USC, and USC could get 100,000 people at the LA Coliseum. This was before pro football. College football was king. There wasn't anything else in the Bay Area. Minor league baseball, but football was was king. It was king until St. Mary's, USF, and Santa Clara, the Catholic schools, were tired of going up against Cal and Stanford on Saturday, who who owned who owned the they had seventy, eighty thousand seat stadiums. St. Mary's couldn't compete, so they started playing on Sundays at Keysar. That's where the attendance really went up. So they Santa Clara would play there, USF St. Mary's, Nevada would come down from Reno to play, and they get these giant crowds. Well, the 49ers got the Sunday rights to Kizar. Yeah. The Catholics had to go back to Saturday. They all quit football at the same time in 1951. And they had good teams. They all had good teams, those three schools. Uh, they came back as small college versions of that later on, but even that died. So the three schools play no, play no football. But Madigan Jim is still there. I'd just like to add a brief remembrance. My uh, uncle, Jay Philip Murphy, played for uh, Madigan for four years at St. Mary's in the 20s. And I was privileged, and I was very close to my uncle, and I would, was privileged to drive with him to Lake Tahoe every summer back and forth, and I was always with him. And he was, he was a great storyteller. But the one thing that really has always rung out in my mind is that Madigan, when they were playing Cal in that game that they won, said to the team, when the golden sun sets in the golden west, the golden bear will be conquered. And the team <laughs> ran out on the field. So that's, that's a memory I'd like to share. You know, also when they played in silk, in hot weather, silk doesn't breathe too well. They, some of the St. Mary's players were wilting playing in those silk uniforms. You know, he didn't have enough students for a band. But he, he slip would buy all the uniforms and then hire all these union musicians. In fact, the baton twirler for Slip Madigan's teams was a, late, a young girl by the name of Robin Orr. 
who later became the fashion editor of the Oakland Tribune. Yes, ma'am. I know you've touched on this, but do you know anything about his personal interaction with the players, uh, what, his, what his pep, talk, pep talks were like? I, I don't have the, the exact language, but his son told me that the son died, almost died several times. At least that's what Slip was telling his teams before the games or at, or at halftime. He, would, he was Rockney-ish. You know, he would come up with the Gipper-like stories, win one for the Gipper kind of thing. So he, he liked, the, he was very melodramatic. He was quite an actor. He was quite a lot of things, I think Slip Madigan was. I think today he probably could run for president. <laughs> he might win. Are we done? Oh, I have a question. Oh, go ahead. But we, we have a podcast, so it gets. Not really a question, and Dave didn't ask me to hustle one of his other books. But if you're a boxing fan, he wrote a wonderful book, among many, is uh, When Boxing Lost Its Punch. And it's about the middleweights of the 30s and 40s, probably one of the great areas of boxing. So you owe me for that pitch, pal. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, I'll probably, I'll owe him probably right after this, this event. <laughs> J. Philip Murphy played for Slip, and towards the end of Slip's career was one of the people who were trying to excuse him from the university. Uh, because he'd been there, 19 years is a long time. And, um, but he was doing him a favor. His health was failing. He had an ulcer. He could never make it home because from that house by the Claremont Country Club golf course, he'd have to go over the Caldecott, which wasn't dug yet, and go out to the, what they called the Four Corners, make a right, and go out to this farming community in Moraga. And so with all these responsibilities that they saddled him with that lessened it the longer he was there, he, he, he didn't make it home. So, And he, he worked the press like a violin. I mean, and I, in going through those tomes... I read, I read stories that I have to tell you, I don't know how many of were accurate. Because back then, if you're a writer in San Francisco, you'd have to take a boat, get your car on a boat to come across the bay before the Bay Bridge was built. And then you had to go over the mountain because the Caldecott Tunnel wasn't dug yet. And the roads were like country roads back then. And then you'd have to make that right at the Four Corners and go out to slip. It was an all-day excursion. But um, one of my favorite stories is this. Do you know the name Prescott Sullivan? Sure. Famous San Francisco sports writer. Well, I didn't know this story until I, I, I read it. He had a, a disagreement. Oh, gosh. Maybe Joe remembers the name. With a, a sports editor of the news, I think it was. And he had a right hand he called Iron Mike. Yeah, the sports editor. Well, they had a disagreement, and they decided to settle it at the Olympic Club golf, co or golf course. So they went out there, and, you know, Prescott was an affable guy. And so the sports writer positioned P 
Prescott to where the sun was in his eye, and then Iron Mike laid him out. When Prescott gained, regained consciousness, he put on his coat, went back to the newspaper, and wrote about it, about how he was knocked out. It, like, made his career. That he was so humble enough to, and smart enough to do something like that. And I guess he was cognizant enough to, to write as beautifully as, as ever. But I just thought... What a great, great story. There were a lot of newspapers back then. There were four in San Francisco, two in Oakland. Uh, they were just all over the place, Berkeley and San Mateo. And they had all these writers and um, Slip almost had him like in the palm of his hand. He just was a magnetic personality. Have we overstayed? Okay. I'm a Notre Dame grad, and so oh. I relate a lot to this. And I know Ed Jr. very, very well and have been in the house a number of times. But you brought out some things that uh, that Ed hadn't bragged about, and he brags about a lot of stuff, as you know. <laughs> but uh, it, it was what struck me was how much Slip learned from Rockney. Rockney took a cut of every game. Rockney put Notre Dame on the map. Um, Rockney traveled across country. In fact, there was a story that I'm sure you must have heard when you re, uh, reviewed this, but uh, I think it was the first time that Notre Dame played SC. Um, Rockney called Slip and wanted him to do some scouting. So he scouted SC and they met, I think, at the Grand Canyon and um, got the scouting report. And we beat SC. Slip, um, everybody wanted the two to meet, Rockney and Madigan. But, and it's in the book. Um, Rockney came to the campus in Moraga, and there's a picture of them uh, together. But Rockney figured, what do I gain if I lose to my former player, right? So they, ne they never played. And right afterwards, Rockney was killed in that plane crash. I think in Kansas in the farm field or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's an interesting book. Even though I wrote it, it's, it's, it's an interesting book <laughs> filled with pictures with slip. And um, the one thing uh, has just happened. I better cut this short. Um, what's going to happen to all those tomes that are down there in the basement? And I gave a talk at the Moraga Historical Society. And uh, a, a gentleman came from St. Mary's, a professor of history. And he said, we'd like at the school to take those, those tomes. Now, Ed, Ed's in his upper 80s now, young Ed. And um, so I don't know. I sent him an email and told him of the professor's desires. But I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. But... It's a re it was a remarkable eight months. The two boys may want to keep it. Yeah, if they know what to do with it. That's the only thing. Yeah, they might, they might keep the, the house. Who knows? Joe! When you mentioned Prescott Sullivan, and I worked with Prescott when he was at the examiner in the morning field, and there's many stories told about Prescott. Yeah. And he was... Uh, the guy would treat the copy boy as well as he'd treat the publishers. And one day, he was going out to make a speech, and he needed a new shirt. So he sent me up to Market Street to get a shirt. He came back, and 
with a shirt with French cuffs. Well, of course, he had no French, you know, cufflinks. Studs. So he went to the copy desk and cut off the sleeves. Problem solved. <laughs> they say that Prescott's car, he, you know, in order to get into his car, he had to just throw things out to get into this car. It's back seat. He never saw the back seat, right? It was just filled with stuff. You know, when he retired, I didn't know him, but he had a retirement dinner in San Francisco at the Russian something or other, Joe? The Lincoln Sullivan Hall. Yeah, we went. Lincoln, I forget. But it, yeah. Patsy and I went. I just thought, God, the guy is such a legend. You have to go pay tribute, even if I didn't know him very, very well. But Yes, ma'am. Have you started working on your next book yet? It's finished. <laughs> Along with another one that's finished. But um, I'm, you know, I'm not studs. I'm not studs to kill. But I, I guess, well, there's several. One is uh, there's a lady up in um, Glen Ellen where Jack London died who's a horse person like Jack London, and she saves injured racehorses from being euthanized or slaughtered. It's a great story. I've only been on two horses in my life. I don't know a lot about it, but I went up there, and I so I involved other people in the program, people who save horses and horses who save people. There's a myriad of stories, including two cops who rode horseback, in San Francisco, in Golden Gate Park. It was, it was, but I, the book's not finished. There's another one about a baseball catcher for the Yankees named Charlie Silvera, who lives in Millbrae. He's in his 90s. And he's on the only baseball team in history that won five straight World Series, the Yankees. And he's the last of eight players who are alive. And I've written his whole story, and the person that published... This book is interested in that book, he said, with alterations. And the last one, gosh, I hope there's a publisher out here in the audience. <laughs> and, and the last one, the Silvera book's done. They're all done. The last one, I don't know why I did it, but I couldn't help myself. The longest high school championship basketball game ever played was at Stanford's um, on Stanford's campus in 1962 in the Peninsula Basketball Tournament. It was won on a jump shot from the corner, a jump shot in the fifth overtime. Only kids can do that. They must, um, by, and it was two schools. One was Ravenswood, which was basically all black, and the other was a Catholic school from Oakland, St. Elizabeth's, that was all white. St. Elizabeth's had a white shadow coach, someone, Tom Crane, that we went to high school with. You may not remember him. But, uh, and so I just thought, what an unusual situation. Ravenswood is in East Palo Alto, which in 1992 was the murder capital of the country per capita. And Oakland, where St. Elizabeth's was located, um, has been in the top 10, top 20 in murders off and on for as long as I can re rem remember. Both schools have closed down. 
The gym has closed down. The tournament has closed down. The three newspapers that cover it have closed down, including the Oakland Tribune. And I just thought, it's, it's one of those niche books. Should I try it? I just went ahead and did it. And there are players I interviewed. Uh, one of the players for Ravenswood was in a Japanese, born in a Japanese concentration camp. Um, the guy that hit the jump shot that won the game, his father was the pastor of this church in East Palo Alto, and Nate now plays the organ and piano there on Sundays and sings gospel. We, Patsy and I have been there. It's just the most wonderful, they're the most wonderful people. So there's, I've interviewed the mayors of East Palo Alto and Oakland. I better stop, I can't go on. But it's called, let's see, what's it called? The Game Would Not End. A cultural clash, a miracle shot, two crime-burdened cities. And, and I got Tom Sherry, of St. Mary's College basketball fame, to write the forward. It's really good. He's a great writer and a poet. Which team won? Ravenswood. Ravenswood won. And then the next year, well, it hasn't been published. I'm not giving anything away. Uh, they could have met again. But Sequoia knocked off Ravenswood for the championship. And so Sequoia went to the tournament and St. Elizabeth won the tournament. So I, as a young sports writer, I covered those Sequoia and Menlo Atherton teams. And I found the guy from Sequoia who was the hero that knocked them off. He's up in Washington State. It was just fun. I love going back in history and finding these pearls. I think, but I don't know if I'll ever sell the book. I've tried to sell the book. It's about high schools and people. It turns them off. But there's, the mayors were fantastic. The interviews were fantastic. The writing so-so. But we'll see where it goes. If you know of a publisher who's looking for a niche book, let me know. We'd like to remind our listening audience that this is a program with the Commonwealth Club of California, and you're listening to Dave Newhouse, sports journalist and author of The Incredible Slip Madigan. Um, unfortunately, we've reached the point in our program where there's probably only time for one last question. Um, I, I have one, actually, if I may ask. Um, can you describe for us the way journalists were treated once they got to these stadiums uh, was there a press box? Uh, was there any kind of food? That's the first question. I don't know. I wasn't around then. <laughs> and there's, there's no sports writer around who would, who, who would tell me that. I've been to some of those stadiums. Dartmouth, I think I was at Dartmouth. And these old wooden boxes. I mean, it's, it's, it's straight out of Amos Alonzo's stag. I mean, they're... And, um, I don't know what they were served. I know a lot of those guys served drinks to themselves. Sports writers, Joe, would you agree? Yeah. They could be kind of hard-bitten a little bit and hard-boiled hard and stuff like that. Well, let me ask you the second question. After the game, did the coaches talk to the press, gather together to ask questions? Can you describe that? They did. Uh, they, were, they were available. Um, but they also had public relations people that had to help drum up stories. Because like for Slip, 
the press in San Francisco was a long way away. So one of the stories that they drummed up was one of the St. Mary's football players worked on a Hollywood screen set in the summers. And so he came back and they said, what did you do during the summer? I, well, I worked on Universal or Metro, Metro Goldwyn or whatever. Oh, that's where Gene Harlow works. This, you know, the silent screen vamp, or not silent screen vamp, silent screen um, siren. He, this PR guy built up this romance that existed between this young football player and this uh, Gene Harlow, and they kept the story going, but St. Mary's was able to protect the kid from the press who wanted to know more uh, about him. Well, finally, St. Mary's was playing a game in Los Angeles, and it was a brother, Albert, who was the president. He arranged a, a, press, or a press conference, just a, a meeting with Gene Harlow. So he goes to meet Gene Harlow, and she, would you like a a Coca-Cola or a coffee or something? He said, no. He said, well, I've got some bourbon. He said, I'd like some bourbon or scotch, but it was whiskey. And um, she said, how come this story keeps going? I don't even know this boy. I mean, it's it's driving me crazy. And so he was trying to cajole her and stuff like that. Well, the romance didn't develop and poor Gene Harlow died like after, right after the season of some kind of one of those diseases that affected those Hollywood stars or something. But got what time for one more? Sure. St. Mary's was trying to get the Cotton Bowl bid. They, there weren't many bowl games back then. But Slip always had these great teams. And so there was a chance the Cotton Bowl was interested and a representative came out to see St. Mary's play. Well, St. Mary's won, and after the game, Slip took this representative to San Francisco for dinner and cocktails. Imagine, cocktails. And um, Marlene Dietrich was performing at this hotel. Slip arranged that the, during one of her breaks that the Cotton Bowl representative got to dance with Marlene Dietrich, and St. Mary's got the bowl bid. I've given away the book, but you're more than welcome to have heard this story, these stories. Just, okay. Our thanks to Dave Newhouse for his comments here today. We also thank our audiences here, as well as those listening to the recording. And now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 115th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. <laughs>